You're listening to Practical Ethics Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Practical Ethics Bites is made in association with Oxford's Uhero Centre for Practical Ethics. If I'm in pain, dying of an incurable disease, shouldn't I be entitled to end my life? And if I can't manage this myself, then to ask doctors to help me? Euthanasia is a highly controversial issue. It's illegal almost everywhere, including Britain. But in a few countries it's now permitted. Dominic Wilkinson is a doctor and an expert on medical ethics. Dominic Wilkinson, welcome to Practical Ethics Bites. Thanks very much. The topic we're going to focus on is euthanasia. Could we just begin by saying what the word euthanasia means? Well, the word euthanasia comes from two Greek words, eu meaning good and thanatos, referring to death. It tends to refer to a good death. Typically, it's defined as the intentional ending of a person's life for their benefit. But I often think about two senses in which death can be good. So the first is euthanasia referring to an individual for whom life is no longer a benefit or is a harm. So an individual, for example, who's suffering, suffering uncontrollably, and continued life for them is to be harmed. Death for them at that point in time is good. But there's a second sense that's often part of the debate, which is the notion of a good death, a death in a particular way that is desirable for that individual. Well, let's take the first of those. The classic case for euthanasia is when somebody is terminally ill and they are in extreme pain as a result of their illness. That's right. So the strongest case for euthanasia are those individuals who are dying. For example, they have a cancer that's spread through their body, through their bones. They will die inevitably, whatever we as medical professionals do, and who have uncontrolled symptoms. So palliative care is a wonderful thing, powerful painkillers, medicines to relieve nausea, but it has its limits. And for these individuals, they are suffering despite the best palliative treatment that there is available. Now, if those individuals make a clear, consistent wish to die rather than to continue to suffer, it seems that they have a pretty strong call on us as society and as physicians. And that's where the emotional case is the strongest for ending an individual's life. Just to get clear on this, palliative care is the medical set of procedures and pharmaceutical treatments that relieve pain. That's right. Treatment of the symptoms, particularly of those who are dying, but it can include patients who have illnesses that may go on for a long period of time but aren't curable. And it's focusing on the patient but also on the family and on the relief of their symptoms rather than the treatment or cure of their underlying illness. Now, we talked about this idea of euthanasia as a way of ending somebody's life who's suffering. But you mentioned the thought that euthanasia can be a good death, the right way to die for somebody. That's right. Different people have different ideas about what they would like at the end of their life. For many people, they might have in mind a good death is one that's free of pain and discomfort, perhaps surrounded by family members, perhaps in their own home rather than being in a strange place or in a hospital or in a hospice. But there are different versions of a good death. And the opposite extreme that certainly I encounter from time to time in my own practice are individuals who feel that a good death is 
to draw on um, Dylan Thomas's famous poem, Raging Against the Dying of the Light, a death that is fought to the last minute, where the intensive medical technology, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, all available drugs have been used, and then the individual dies. And medical professionals often blame television and popular media for supporting this culture of ultimate intervention. And often, as medical professionals, we tend to be sceptical that this is, in fact, a good death. But some people choose that for themselves or for their loved ones in preference to the first sort of death that I described, the calm death at home without medical interventions. Now, ethical questions come in here partly because there's a law against certain kinds of killing and that law differs in different countries, but partly because there are religious prohibitions as well on certain sorts of killing. That's right. So we should say that euthanasia is illegal in this country, in the UK, as in many countries. But when we're referring to euthanasia, we're referring to a particular type of euthanasia, which is active euthanasia. So I referred to the intentional ending of an individual's life for their benefit as, as euthanasia. And active euthanasia refers typically to doctors giving drugs to induce the patient's death. For example, very heavy sedatives or medicines to stop a patient's heart. That's interesting because it's not illegal to attempt suicide, but it would be illegal to persuade a doctor to administer a lethal dose. Well, it remains illegal in this country and many others to assist somebody to end their life. And partly that's because the law has chosen to regard it as absurd to make suicide illegal. After all, if somebody has died, imposing legal sanctions on them seems completely pointless. But because of wanting to avoid situations where people are helped to die, where perhaps they might have responded to treatment, for example, for depression, the law has taken a very stern approach to avoiding promoting or encouraging in any way people to end their lives. And the approach to euthanasia in this country and in others clearly relates to that. In this country, voluntary euthanasia, where an individual expresses a wish to end their life and a physician then administers a drug or provides them with a drug that they can take themselves, remains illegal. And yet in some countries in Europe, euthanasia is legal. I'm thinking of Switzerland and the Netherlands, for instance. Well, that's right. Some countries have, over time, come to regard an individual's autonomous decision to end their life, perhaps in certain restricted circumstances, as something that the state ought to support with particular safeguards. And so they've taken to permitting what's often referred to as voluntary euthanasia. There's a distinction often between three types of euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia at the patient's request, non-voluntary euthanasia, which refers to intentional ending of life for an individual who isn't able to request that, perhaps because they're unconscious or they're very young. And the third category where an individual has requested to continue to live. So this is involuntary euthanasia. Just to take the last of those, involuntary euthanasia. If I'm telling you, don't kill me, and then you kill me, that sounds like murder. And traditionally it would be seen as being equivalent to murder. To be honest, involuntary euthanasia is not part of the debate. Except you might refer to the Nazi program of euthanasia as a form of involuntary euthanasia against the wishes of individuals to continue to live. So one of the 
features of debates about euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide is that there's often reference to the Nazi program of killing very large numbers of individuals who had, for example, severe physical disability or mental illness. And that was referred to as euthanasia, and you could call that involuntary euthanasia. But in fact, that's better just referred to as mass murder, because even from the point of view of those who were perpetrating it, it wasn't done for the benefit of those individuals. It was done for the benefit of the bulk of the society. Now, coming back to the ethical issues surrounding voluntary euthanasia and possibly non-voluntary euthanasia, there are many people who, on religious grounds, think that any kind of killing is morally wrong. That's right. So the strongest opposition to euthanasia often comes from those who have a, a religious background and who have had religious teachings that tell them that, for example, the killing of an innocent is always wrong. Within those traditions, though, there are, are some nuances, and in particular, most religious traditions will accept that doctors are not obliged to keep an individual alive in all circumstances. And so here comes the distinction between what's often referred to as passive and active euthanasia. So active euthanasia refers to intentional actions that a doctor might take to end a patient's life by giving them drugs to stop them breathing, whereas passive euthanasia refers to not providing, withholding or withdrawing, stopping treatments that might be keeping a patient alive. And religious traditions, including Christian, Islamic, Buddhist, Hindu, allow the latter, allow doctors to not provide life-saving treatments in some circumstances where it is for the benefit of the patient. You've talked about this active-passive distinction, but when you use the word withholding of treatment, well, that seems like an action. It seems you're deliberately withholding a treatment. If I put my hand over your mouth and stopped you breathing, withholding your oxygen, that would be an action rather than some kind of passive way of killing you. That's right. There are physical activities that take place when doctors are not doing something, in particular when we're stopping something. So if somebody's, for example, dependent on a medicine to keep them alive and I press a, a button on a syringe pump to stop that medicine, I am taking an action. But that has been regarded by the courts and, and by religious traditions and by others as permissible. Not by all religious traditions. Orthodox Jews, for example, will not allow doctors to withdraw or stop treatments, but will allow them to not start. And so there's some interesting subtleties in the way that intensive care is provided in Israel with timers on breathing machines that need to be reset each day. So they regard the resetting of a ventilator as restarting it, and they're not obliged to restart the ventilator each day. But it would be impermissible to do, as we might in other countries in this country, to physically take a breathing tube out of a patient when the ventilator, we think, is not helping them anymore. Now, this discussion relies on something that's usually described as the acts and omissions doctrine, namely that there is a fundamental distinction between doing something and omitting to do something. That's right. And a number of philosophers and practitioners have raised scepticism about whether there is a bright line between acts and omissions. To be honest, when doctors are removing breathing machines or even standing at the bedside and not providing CPR, heart massage, it's hard to see that there's something strikingly different 
to them making a positive act to end an individual's life where the intentions are the same. For example, that a patient is suffering and it would be not in their best interests to preserve their life and the consequences are the same for the patient. The patient's going to die either way. It's very hard to see why we should mark this distinction. There is a way of approaching euthanasia which draws a distinction between deliberately bringing about somebody's death and administering some kind of treatment with the foreseeable consequences that it will hasten that person's death. And that's thought to be ethically different. So this distinction is often associated with the natural law tradition, with Aquinas in particular, and it's often referred to as the doctrine of double effect. The notion is that it's permissible for doctors or others to take actions with a particular intention in mind of a good effect, that's the first effect, even if there is a foreseeable side effect that's seen as bad that may occur as a result. And the classic example in all the textbooks is a doctor administering morphine to a dying patient with the aim of relieving their pain, but with the side effect of hastening their death. Of course, the interesting thing from a practical point of view is that this example is not a very good one because the evidence from the palliative care literature is that if you have patients who are experiencing pain and you treat them with appropriate doses of morphine, they don't die any sooner. In fact, the evidence suggests the opposite, that those individuals who have higher doses of painkillers actually survive longer than those who don't get their painkillers. So... It may not be such a good example, but nevertheless, the doctrine of double effect has been embraced in professional guidelines and in the law as a way of allowing doctors to provide care for dying patients without fear that in doing so, they may lead to the patient's earlier death. Now, this doctrine of double effect and also the notion that there's a distinction between active and passive euthanasia actually brings out very nicely the difference between a deontological approach and a consequentialist one, like a utilitarian one. Because from a utilitarian perspective, the consequences are what matter. That's right. And euthanasia, I think, is one of those paradigm examples where you reach different answers from a strict deontological perspective and a strict utilitarian perspective, at least an act utilitarian perspective. So the day somebody from a deontological or natural law perspective may bring to the example that you mentioned at the start of a patient suffering with advanced cancer, may bring to that an absolute prohibition on actively ending life and accept that the patient will perhaps live longer than they would choose, may perhaps experience more suffering than would be ideal, and yet say, well, we have no options, we cannot end this individual's life. Whereas the consequentialist will say, clearly it would be better to allow, in this sort of circumstance, doctors to mercifully end the patient's life. And utilitarians put such a great emphasis on the balance of pleasure over pain or happiness over suffering that it's easy to see why they would focus on minimising suffering in these sorts of situations because there isn't much potential for happiness apart from the reduction of the suffering of patients who are mortally ill. That's right. There are two cases where the utilitarian case for active euthanasia is at its strongest. The first is where a patient is going to die inevitably in the near future anyway and 
strongly wishes to die now. For those individuals, they can only have their wishes frustrated and suffer by having their life continued. The second type of case, and obviously the two overlap, is where an individual is suffering an enormous amount of discomfort despite all of the treatment that we have available for them, where it is a harm, as I suggested, for them to continue to live. In that situation, a consequentialist or a utilitarian sees the best consequences as actively ending that individual's life. Some people argue that we're now in a position of technological sophistication so that we have many different methods of pain relief. Uh, Palliative care is excellent in the West. So there's no longer a need for euthanasia because what you can do when somebody's in great pain is administer high levels of painkillers, even possibly to the point of rendering them unconscious, in which case they presumably aren't feeling pain at all. Palliative care has become very sophisticated and we have great ability to manage the symptoms of patients with very severe illnesses. But there are some limits to that and and those who care for dying patients will admit that there are some patients who have symptoms despite the best palliative care or whose symptoms can only be removed by rendering them unconscious. One of the consequences of most of the everyday pain-killing medicines is to reduce your level of consciousness. Sometimes there is no ability to remove pain but retain the ability to be conscious. For those individuals, it becomes less clear that it's a benefit to continue to be alive. They're out of pain, but equally they don't get to experience or communicate with those around them, and so they may prefer to die sooner rather than later. So far we've just been talking about individual deaths and how they might occur, but actually there's a social issue that is very much an ethical issue about what the consequences of tolerating euthanasia might be. And there are utilitarian arguments which would say that although in particular cases you can see there is a very good consequentialist argument for hastening somebody's death, actually the consequences of that for society would be detrimental. That's right. So there's a distinction often made between act and rule utilitarianism. Act utilitarianism says choose for each act the course of action that will produce the greatest happiness overall. Rule utilitarian refers to those rules that, if adopted, would lead to the greatest happiness. And one unanswered question, I think, is whether it would be better to have rules that permitted voluntary euthanasia, such as are in place in the Netherlands or Belgium, or to prohibit those sorts of actions and to rely on palliative care to provide care and dignity in dying in a different way. The concern by many is that even though we can imagine cases where it would be much better for an individual to be actively helped to die, that there might be other cases where an individual would be helped to die and yet it would not actually be better for them to die. For example, where they felt pressured to end their life, they felt like a burden on their family, or perhaps where they were suffering temporary desire to die because they're depressed or upset and yet if they continue to live for a period of time would come to some acceptance for example of their illness or disabling condition and actually find significant pleasure in their ongoing life and it's unclear where the equation from a utilitarian point of view would come would there be more people whose lives would be prolonged beyond the point of benefit 
if we disallowed voluntary euthanasia, if we allow it, would there be more people whose lives would be prematurely ended? That's a question that I think is unanswered. You've worked very closely with people who are dying and seen many deaths in hospitals. You must have views about whether euthanasia is generally a good or a bad thing to have available to people who want it. I think that passive euthanasia, that avoiding inflicting medical treatments beyond benefit and keeping people comfortable who are dying is something that we should absolutely support. One of the things that I've become aware of as I've cared for dying patients is that because we can remove people's pain to a very high degree, even if they do then subsequently become unconscious, that there is less pressure to actively end an individual's life. A lot of what we then need to do as health professionals is to care for the family in a time that can be uncomfortable when their loved one is dying over a period sometimes of hours or days the patient may have a number of physical manifestations that are uncomfortable to watch and there can be a temptation to treat the patient in that situation in order to relieve the family's distress. The approach in the Netherlands and in other parts of the world, is to avoid that uncomfortable period of uncertainty by having a controlled death, and that's seen as a good death. But it's not the only type of good death, and certainly within our legal framework, what we have to do is to do our best to care for the family in that in the last phases of their loved one's life. Dominic Wilkinson, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Nigel. For more Practical Ethics Bites, go to www.practicalethics.com dot ox dot ac dot uk